Hello, hello. Welcome back to the show. It's time for a leading woman in tech. Let's talk about failure. Let's talk about the cost of too many failures. This is a topic that's very dear to my heart because as a business leader, I embrace failure. My team will tell you I encourage failure. Not so much I encourage failure, but I want them to try things out. I want them to do things that they don't know the answer to. I don't want them to fail to make a decision because they're afraid of failure. So as a company, as a CEO, and as a manager, I embrace failure. But today, I'm bringing on somebody who is going to challenge us on that. Debbie Levite, MBA, is the CXO of Delta CX, her own company. And since the mid-1990s, she's been a CX and UX consultant focused on strategy, research, training, and human-centered design and user-centered design. And she is passionate about the cost of failure. And you're going to hear from us today a little bit about how this rapid cycle of fail fast, iterate, lean, agile, MVPs is actually a problem. And in the last few years, as companies have embraced failure, this is causing huge problems for companies. Debbie is passionate about writing this wrong. And she's a change agent, a business design consultant, and she's focused on helping companies of all sizes, whatever size company it is, transform towards customer centricity. While using Agile and she does say that these have a place there. And I would definitely argue that I think part of the problem with Agile and Lean is they're heavily misunderstood. Most people implement them without actually understanding what they mean. And I think part of today's lesson with Debbie is really to understand when failure is okay, when it should be embraced, and when it's actually bad for business. And I know for us as individuals, I do a lot of coaching around not being afraid to fail, our imposter syndrome, our perfectionism, meaning we have this massive fear of failure. But when we translate that into what happens at work, like what then happens? And one of the things we need to do as great leaders is develop the ability to allow ourselves to fail, but then ask questions around, but why are we allowing the company to make so many mistakes and fail? It's not that companies shouldn't make mistakes and shouldn't fail, but we are in a culture right now of perhaps too many. So without further ado, let's get Debbie onto the show. Welcome to the Leading Women in Tech podcast, the show that celebrates women in technology leadership. I'm your host, Tony Collis, and this podcast is the result of my passion for building better tech by diversifying the leadership of the technology sector. Join me on this journey as I discuss all things leadership, what it takes to be innovative, breaking through the glass ceiling, be a great leader, and how to navigate the unique experiences we face as women in tech. So sit back, grab your headphones, and get ready to be inspired to become a better leader. Welcome to the show, Debbie. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks, Tony. Thanks for having me on. Happy New Year, everybody. Indeed. Thank you. Can you start, Debbie, by sharing with us your career journey today? Highlights, lowlights, and how you came to be a coach and consultant in the CX and UX space? Yeah, sure. So basically, uh, for let's just say decades, I've been working in strategy, CX and UX. And um, 
Gosh, uh, I've been doing uh, research and design and and strategy and training and teaching and all of this stuff. And throughout time, I've also been uh, a coach and a mentor and a teacher and trainer as well. And so uh, part of my business now is that type of coaching and training. Some of that is that larger training, going into a company and trying to help teams improve. But I also do a lot of one-on-one coaching with people who are either trying to transition into CX and UX work, as well as people who are already working in that space or sometimes leaders in that space and really just need an outside expert to rant to or get some advice from or show their work to or things like that. So uh, my company is called Delta CX. And as I was saying, there's just a mountain of things that we can do for people from projects to training to coaching to uh, a lot more. Why did you end up in this particular field of coaching? I know when we spoke before the show, you have a particular passion for the role of CX and UX in the workplace, which people talk about, but not sure people fully appreciate the importance of it. Give us a little bit of like insight as to why to you this is the one of the most important things in a business. Yeah, it's hard to say that other domains aren't important. So I don't want anyone listening to think <laughs> I'm saying that. But I think that CX and UX are often either overlooked or undervalued because we sometimes think, well, marketing cares about how customers experience things. So they're taking care of it or customer support. They're going to make people happy. But I say, take a few steps back. We would need less marketing or we would do marketing differently if we had much better products and services. We wouldn't need customer support to put a Band-Aid on stuff and apologize to us and give us a discount or whatever if we had better products and services. And so to me, it really goes back to the core of what we're offering our potential and current users, customers, partners, whoever's in your ecosystem. And so at the core of that is really the customer and user experience and how we research these people to understand what we need and how we hopefully solve their problems and not just manipulate them and try to push them around a chessboard and hope that they do what the company wants, but how we really try to make people successful. So that's kind of the the center of my world. <laughs> I love that. Well, tell us a little bit about the importance of empathy for your customer, which is really at the heart of what you're talking about. In particular, if if you are in UX itself, if you are a tech leader, but you're not in UX, what do what do my listeners need to hear about the importance of empathy for their customers from in your perspective? Yeah, so I'm going to say something that might be controversial, which is stop talking about empathy. I find that Ooh. most empathy that we have is is fake. So for example, if someone said, if you said to me, Debbie, I really have empathy for you, I would say, how? You and I barely know each other. You know, how can you really, the, the original definition of empathy was the idea of seeing someone else's world through their eyes as they see it without any of your biases, opinions, preferences, prejudices, mm. or applying what you want to somebody else. But I don't think we're seeing this in companies. I don't think we're seeing true empathy. I think maybe we care about customers. Empathy and care aren't the same, but I think we got really 
caught up on this buzzword and I challenge everybody who tells me we have empathy for customers, we're building empathy for customers, we made empathy a value. I say, stop and make sure you've defined what you mean by that. Because if you're telling me we really look through customers' eyes and we really want to make sure we're doing what they need and satisfying their needs, then I say, great, tell me how much you're spending on research. Mm. And who's doing your research? Because very often at those companies, they don't even have professional researchers. They have somebody who likes to call a couple of customers a week and say, what do you want? What are we missing? To me, that doesn't match my definition of empathy. How are we including people from marginalized groups? Are we excluding them? Are we stereotyping them? Where's your empathy for them? And hypothetically, wouldn't that empathy be to say, there's no way I can truly know the reality of a person who isn't me? I don't know the day to day reality of of a refugee, of a black person, of a trans person. These are all important humans that we should be including in our research. They're in our customer base. But instead, I think we have a lot of theater empathy and performative empathy Mm. where we say we have empathy for these customers and maybe we claim to care about them, but I'm challenging companies and leaders and I'm saying, Show me how. It's not enough to say you have empathy. It's not enough to say you care. Because when I look at the rest of what you're doing, very often it ranges from wacky to unethical. Very often we make decisions that push users and customers to do what we want so that we can satisfy business goals. Where's the empathy? And so I would say... Empathy is not the most important thing we can have or do or or focus on. My question is, what evidence, knowledge, and data do we have about our target users, customers, partners? And where did we get that information? Because if we sat around a workshop and made it up, it's probably false. It's it, mm. We could call it evidence, but it's not good evidence. And so before you claim to have empathy, I have a little model that I sometimes talk about I call it empathy, knowledge, and action. You know, we can claim to have empathy, but what knowledge do we have about our users and customers? And where did we get that? Did we survey them? That's probably not very deep or good information. And if we claim to have empathy or knowledge, what action did we take? Very often, especially if you do have CX or UX people at your company, someone is saying, You know, we found out there's a real problem for our users. There's a problem we need to fix. What do we often hear at at companies? They'll figure it out. That's not our priority. We don't need to do anything for that. I don't want to spend money on that. Is that going to satisfy our business goals? Because if not, why make it better? We hear lots of low empathy things. And so I would say we have to take a look at the actions we're taking because our actions and decisions will tell us if we have any empathy or care for customers and if we're living up to our company values. But you mentioned ethics there a couple of times, stereotyping customers, making decisions about our customers that we think are research, but actually get sat in a room behind closed doors. I mean, one, it always surprised me when people say that is that common. I remember the first thing I've ever done in every startup I've ever worked with is let's go talk to customers. Like, let's get on the phone. Let's go and sit in front of them. Let's go and show them our product and see what they wince at. 
or where they go, that's just awful or painful or what, that doesn't make sense. So to me, it's almost like, wow. Um, I feel like, particularly when you mentioned ethics there and also stereotyping, I felt like there were there's some stories behind that. I mean, obviously your experience in this area is enormous. Give us some examples of where you've seen that going wrong. I mean, as a woman in tech and my audience is women in tech, We've, we've got all the women in tech stories, but I feel like some of us sometimes are therefore blinkered towards this stereotyping we put customers through as well. Yeah, it's uh, I can't tell too many stories, but there are certainly times where I've seen like, this is what the white customer needs and this is what the black customer needs. And mm-hmm. my thought is, are you sure? Because, you know, ultimately, is the difference between these people really their skin color or does it have to do with where they live? Does it have to do with their income? Does it have to do with being in a marginalized group and how there might be systemic issues or or oppression? Or is it really just about being black? Like, are we sure that's the bucket we want to put people in? I think we rely too much on demographics. I, mm. I mean, we can tell from the products and services that we use who a company thinks we are. And when I take a look at things like the ads I get on Instagram or something like that, because Instagram has figured out I'm in my early 50s, I'm menopausal, let's say it out loud, and I can tell what companies think of me by the ads I get. Companies appear to think that I am morbidly obese, that I smell pretty terrible. You know, like I I see, I can tell by the ads that I get what companies assume about me me because mm. I'm a early 50s woman. And that alone is a set of stereotypes. Nobody said to me, hey, Deb, we want to talk to you about your unique menopausal experience because those experiences are unique and they change from person to person. Not everybody is having the same problems mm-hmm. and not everybody finds the same solutions work. It's a very individualized experience. Are people going out and and observing people and interviewing them, not just to show them a product and say, would you use this? That's really late in the game. Are they going out early before they try to come up with a solution when we're not in love with a solution yet and just saying, let's learn more about what your problems are. Let's learn more about where your life or work, maybe unrelated to menopause, is inefficient what, you know, show me what this looks like. Walk me through this day or experience or whatever it might be. Hey, when you're filling out this form, where are you? Not everybody is at a desk with a big computer, mm-hmm. with a nice keyboard. Sometimes people have to fill out our crappy forms on the bus, holding their phone in one hand and a pole in the other hand for dear life. And then we give them these forms with these long essay answers. And mm-hmm. so... I think that if we think about all kinds of stereotyping and putting people into buckets, this often comes back to conversations about demographics. And and to me, demographics are left over from a world where we really just wanted to sell stuff to white men. And the question was, how much money do they have and did they have kids and where do they live? And so then we could put them into buckets because we lived in a society of conformity. In, in those times, it was 
too weird for you to not be like your neighbor. Everybody had their cookie cutter houses mm. and their they their suits and they, they put on their suit and they got in their good American car and they drove to work and so on. And and we're not that anymore. We're not as uh, conformist as we used to be. And therefore, there's a rainbow of people and experiences that we weren't thinking about when demographics were becoming popular. So I just want to remind people to just not leave on what I call lazy buckets where, oh, well, this is the black experience. Are you sure there's only one? You know, are, are, that, that doesn't sound right to me. There can't mm -hmm. just be one black experience. Be careful when we say this is the female experience or this is the transgender experience or this is the black experience or this is the mm. Christian experience. Would we say these things? Even be they saying do, them out do. loud. People are, people probably are wincing right now going Christian, you know? And so it doesn't make sense to put people into some of these, these buckets. And I think we have to shift away from that. And that's why I'm trying to call for more behavioral based research yes. earlier in projects. It's one thing to evaluate a prototype or a product or service later, but what early behavioral and observational research are we doing to even understand who these people are? Mm -hmm. I love that. I've always had an issue with, you know, the obsession with having an ideal client avatar where they've got a gender, you automatically assign them probably a, a race, you're told how many kids do they have? Are they? You how know, does that help you? Exactly. How That's does what I that say help? to people. Ask yourself: Can you make any strategies, decision, or decisions based on the stuff you often find in personas or profiles? Mm -hmm. You know, are you going to make a different decision based on what car I drive? That's weird. I might get a new car tomorrow. Does that mean you'd make a different decision because now Debbie has a Toyota instead of the crappy car she can't wait to get rid of? Uh, hashtag not sponsored. <laughs> You know, I just like Toyotas um, and not the car I have now. Grumble, grumble. You know, it, does it make sense? You know, you say Debbie's 50. Well, in a couple of years, I'll be 55. Does Now I fall into a different demographic mm -hmm. bucket. Usually it's like 45 to 54. Do you really think I've changed that much between 54 and 55? Yes. And, and so I think we have to ask ourselves these questions like, what am I doing? And, and am I really leaning on stereotypes of what mm -hmm. I think certain genders or ages or types of people want? And I say types in air quotes. Mm. Well, one of the other things I know that you and I talked about before hitting record is when companies are in this rapid cycle of fail fast, iterate, agile, MVPs, without paying attention to the needs of the customer. Can you dig into that a little bit more for the audience today? Oh, happily. Thank you so much. Yeah. So it's been, it's been a surreal universe in, at least in 2023, when we see so many companies glorifying failures. Mm. Hey, our products and services are, have a high rate of failure. Hey, our AB tests and experiments have a high rate of failure. And then usually the next thing they say is, this is good. This is the way it's supposed to work. This is good strategy. This is good product management. And I say, no, it's not. 
on uh, there is no planet on which a high failure rate is something a company should welcome and the and we make it then we start making excuses and we really must recognize these as excuses because i find people say well it's good that we're failing so much because now we're learning and i say well number 1 if learning is so important to you why didn't you do more research up front why were we guessing cuz so many of the products and experiments and ab tests that we put out are guesses i think people would like this i think people would do this. I know the user pretty well, and I think they'll do this. That's technically an, a guess. It's another layer in our guessing lasagna. And so when we see these high failure rates, we should really be hitting the brakes and saying, what's going wrong here? Why did we fail so much or so often or even more than we expected? Uh, now, no company is going to have a 0% failure rate, but you would think that, especially to be agile or lean, you would want as few failures as possible. Mm -hmm. Failures are wasteful. Failures burn time and money. They burn customer trust. They burn all kinds of things and, and they don't have great outcomes. The whole point of a failure is to say we had a poor or unexpected outcome. So I think instead of glorifying these and using excuses like, oh, but we're learning. And I go, okay, what did you learn? Uh, we learned that idea wasn't good. Okay. So you really didn't learn what was the right way to go, the right thing to do. You just learned that this guess didn't give you the numbers you expected, but that is very short-term win mentality. And it's a very, let's just keep running with cycles mm -hmm. of guesses. And to me, this really comes from old stuff like the Lean Startup, which was written for startups. And many of us are not necessarily at startups. But I think if you're seeing failure rates at your company, if you're seeing product launch failures, you launch something new and it's not being utilized, you um, build something for customers that you're highly confident in and they don't seem to want it or, or need it or they complain about it, don't badmouth them. Take, have the come to Jesus talk with you, with your team, because chances are you got something wrong or multiple things wrong. And if we're going to claim that we welcome failure, then we have to at least welcome the conversation that says we got this wrong before mm -hmm. we just run with another cycle and another guess. And maybe if we put the button here, they'll press it more. And maybe if we make the corners more rounded, they'll press it more <laughs> before you keep running with cycles of guesses. Stop and ask yourself, how did we get here? What do we really know? What problem mm -hmm. are we solving? Especially when I see companies doing A-B tests where they move the button here a little bit and they change the color and they round the corners. I go, what problem are you trying to solve? You're definitely not trying to solve a problem for your customers. You're trying to make your customers do a thing that they probably don't want to do. What do you know about why they do this or don't do this? What do you know about why they don't want to do it? What do you know about why they don't do it? You, what do you know about why? And so often people say, well, we send out a survey and we know X percent of people. No, you still don't know why. Well, we called three customers last week and asked them what they wanted and what what we're missing, you still don't know why. You still don't know what people do or don't do and why. And so again, it just goes back to my repeated suggestion that people bring in professional CX and UX researchers and let them do stuff early in a project. Mm. The point of discovery is not to discover who will buy our crappy idea. The point of discovery was supposed to be to discover more about people so that we can 
write out problem statements, and eventually figure out the correct solutions for their problems that also solve business goals. Discovery is not about taking our best guess. We didn't need a discovery process to just run with our best guess. Discovery was supposed to inspire people to stop and discover more about target audiences. But I see so many people writing and teaching stuff that really doesn't stand up to critical thinking. I saw one the other day from a person you can guess who I won't name, who said that early research in a project isn't that important and it doesn't matter how well you do it or blah, 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 because we just want to mitigate some risk. We're not looking to seek truth, was what the person said. And my initial thought was, okay, a thousand people can press like on that on LinkedIn and everyone can go buy that person's book, but that doesn't even stand up to critical thinking. When are we not seeking truth? When will the truth not be the path to mitigating risk? Why would we say we don't really need research because we're not seeking truth? I find that we press like on stuff that doesn't even stand up to critical thinking. You're very passionate about this and I applaud that. One thing I do want to just bring in here for my audience, because a lot a lot of my True. audience, I know they've struggled with personal failure and accepting that. And I have certainly seen in the last couple of years as there's been more of a culture of acceptance of failure in the corporate. There has been more of an acceptance of it's okay for our individual staff to fail. And I'm a big believer in that. I talk to my team all the time, like, it's okay to fail. I want to celebrate the fact you tried something and it didn't work. That is a good thing. And I do just want to tease apart for my audience the difference there between us trying something as individuals and it not working. And that's okay with what you're talking about in my mind, at least. Apologies for putting words in your mouth here, which is corporate ignorance, I suppose, being allowed to be a crutch for failure. Yeah, great point. And thanks for bringing it up because we were certainly talking about corporate teams making guesses. When I think about the idea of personal failure, I think it is important to be comfortable with being willing to try a thing, Mm. take a risk. A lot of people see me as a giant risk taker, but they don't know how much I am calculating behind the scenes. Mm. So I do think that people should be willing to go for something partially mess it up, wholly mess it up, and walk away from it, redo it, fix it, whatever's the right next thing to do. Because sometimes it's trying again, and sometimes it's walking away. And I can't tell you what's the right thing to do. But I do want to certainly suggest that before people go there, consider making sure you've got a good set of knowledge and evidence for whatever it is. Because I think, and this would be true for corporate teams as well. Mm -hmm. So I think before you just try a thing, how much can you know about that domain? Now, of course, you can't know everything. So you have to find the balance between, yeah, the balance between how much time do I want to spend trying to know more about this versus I'm just going to go for it. And so I think about a coworker I had who came to me with a project a few weeks ago. And they said, I have this project. I'm under a lot of pressure. Uh, This is what I've done with it. What do you think? And I thought that they 
had not done a good job, but not really because they were bad at it, but the, the shape of the project, the pressure they were under, some bad information they got from other people. So I didn't blame them. And that's another thing. Sometimes you don't do a great job and you still did your best because you didn't have the greatest inputs or resources or time. And so make sure you separate in your mind the difference between I really did my best with what I had and the times when maybe you didn't do your best and, but like, don't look back and second guess yourself. But sometimes in the moment I know, I go, you know what? I can't do my best right now. I don't have enough time. Mm. I don't have enough information. I'm just going to have to do my best knowing it's not my best. But when I looked at this person's work, it, it was not strong, but I didn't think that it was her fault. And so we just reworked it together and and it ended up being a, a big success. She took it in a great direction. She did a beautiful job with it and she just needed a little support and someone to help her get away from some of the whispers in her ear from some of the stakeholders. Mm. And so I think that the definitely the message I want to give your audience is try things, take risks, but try where possible to be aware of when are you missing time, information, resources, or something that could hurt the outcome of this? And is there anything you can do to be prepared with a plan B or plan C? Like, I'm going to try to do this. And if it doesn't work out as well as I thought, here's what I would try to do next. Because I find sometimes people, when they have that moment of failure, there's a lot of kind of personal crisis moment. And then they're like, well, now what do I do? And, and it gets a little more emotional. Mm -hmm. And I think if you think ahead of time before you're in that tough emotional spot, if you think ahead of time, here's what I'm going to try to do now with the time and resources and information that I have. And if this doesn't work out, here's what I would do next. And that way I find people have a little bit of a softer emotional landing. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, this didn't work out the way I wanted, but I already thought of, thank you past me for thinking about what plan B might be. Now I feel like I have some direction of what to do so that I'm not just guessing again. Mm. And so the, I think those are some of the things that I would recommend to people because I certainly don't want people to feel embarrassed about failures. I don't want them to feel imposter syndrome and I don't want them to feel negatively, but I do want them to try to as much as possible where you can, sometimes you can't. Be as prepared as you can and start thinking about what plan B would be so that when you're in that tough moment of some failure, you feel like you have some direction. Yeah. What would be your advice for a listener who leader in the company, but not necessarily high enough up to set budget for something like a UX researcher? They can see that things are going wrong. They're losing customers. The company is sinking in some way. Maybe they're in engineering or maybe in marketing and they can see this playing out. What would be your first piece of advice to such a person to help them start writing the ship, even if they aren't, strictly speaking, in control of the full situation? Yeah, I think that's where you need to kind of get together with some allies. Usually if there's an engineer who's thinking, gosh, I wish we knew more about our users before we were building this thing. <laughs> Chances are there's a scrum master who feels similarly. Chances are there's someone in marketing who feels similarly. Chances are there's a product manager who feels similarly. Um, and if you have a UX designer, you know they feel similarly. I would say look for allies. Chances are if you feel like, I wish we had 
deeper, better knowledge about our target audiences before we were just guessing at solutions and making stuff, you're probably not alone. And I think if you can get more people together behind that and say, we really should have a UX researcher who can help us answer our unanswered questions. That's one of my favorite things to do with teams. We've got an exercise that we run. People can find, uh, the people can learn how to do it for free on my YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and write CX dash CC, which is the name of my channel, and then 196, which is the episode that it was. But I, for short, I call it the knowledge quadrant. And basically, it's a simple Miro board where we either get people together or we give it to them asynchronously. And we say related to a particular project or aspect of a project or aspect of a product or service, what do we wish we knew? Mm. What do we think we know, but it might not be right? What information would help us make better strategies, decisions, products, or services? What do we wish we knew internally about our audience, about our ecosystem, about our technology? I find that very often teams have unanswered questions, especially about our users and their behaviors, but they don't know where to get that information because the company just wants to run a survey. And it's often hard to get at the bottom of real behavioral and kind of cognitive psych information from just a survey, because mm-hmm. we're probably going to ask the wrong questions the wrong ways. And I think if your company ran a board like that, and you started to see the questions people had, these unanswered questions, and you started to have the tough conversation of, hey, we run all these surveys, and we still don't know this. Mm-hmm. We ran that focus group, and we still don't know this. Maybe it's time for us to get a real UX researcher who can do the projects that will answer these questions. And I think if you had enough people coming together saying, this is really missing from our process, and we can see where it's hurting us, we can now see where cycles of guesses have cost us time, money, customer trust, customer attrition, customer support utilization. You know, the a researcher usually more than pays for themselves when you think about the number of sprints you might save when you're not guessing so much, when you think about customer support calls that never happen. So I think it just, you know, you might not control the budget, but chances are you're not the only one who wishes they understood the users better. Find allies and then go to someone above you and say, look, we all need this. And a researcher is paid, you know, roughly what uh, a front or back end developer is paid. They're not paid more than this. These are numbers we're used to. Can we bring in one? Can we bring in a freelancer for six months just Mm -hmm. to see what it's like? And and my advice to companies is don't start with the cheapest person you can find because I see this all the time. Even you startups, don't start with the cheapest person you can find because no offense to them, they're not the best. They need a mentor, if nothing else. They need somebody more senior with them. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So start with someone with seven plus years of experience, specifically in the area you want. If you want someone who's a researcher, don't pick someone with seven years of design. They're not the same thing. Get a specialized expert researcher, see what amazing things they can do for your company. And then when you fall in love with that, sure, you can bring in juniors and mid-levels and apprentices and interns and newbies because you'll have someone who you can allocate some of their time to the mentorship and coaching and support that Mm -hmm. they need. But please don't, don't make your first hire the newbie. They're still learning and they might have a lot of potential and they might look pretty good at this, but it's not going to be the same as what some 
someone with seven years plus of experience can do for you? I'm just going to call out one thing, and this is where we can have a difference of opinion here. I always encourage difference of opinion. I always like to call out whenever I hear somebody say, you know, a number of years of experience. Oh, sure. That is an artificial box. And I feel very strongly that in the tech industry, we need to, I've worked with people who've had amazing experience, but it's only been one or two years. I got my first C-level position in seven years. I definitely didn't have all the obvious boxes ticked. And so I just, I like to call that one out. I get what you're saying though. I completely agree with that. They need key experience. I just don't want to put, I want to encourage this to not put an artificial number on that. You're totally right. And the reason why I did put a number on it is because right now in UX, we're seeing title inflation. Mm. We're seeing people with one year of experience called senior. And, you know, 10 years ago, you couldn't get a senior title with at least five years of experience. So it used to be very easy for me to say, hey, find a senior or higher, mm. find a lead or higher. But now there are people who in their first year of a job are being called senior or lead. And so I don't want similarly to the to the number. Numbers just being a little bit of an artificial thing. Even title levels mm-hmm. right now are a bit of an artificial yeah. thing. And so to ultimately, the to me, the reason why I threw a number at it, and it doesn't have to be seven, maybe it's five or whatever, is I just want to make sure you're dealing with someone with a huge amount of experience who isn't a newbie. In UX, we generally consider people to be newbies their first two or three years. Um, but again, that's going to depend on the individual. Yeah. Some people come into us with just amazing natural talent or transitioning from a different job. Um, but sometimes people are not that strong at what they're doing until they're a few years in and have had a lot of good coaching and, and mentorship. So you're right. It's not a hard number at seven, but it's just a general guideline I give people so they don't go, well, this person has one or two years of experience. They're probably okay. But I know that these are still people who struggle when they don't have a much more senior Mm -hmm. UX manager or leader who they can go to for mentoring and coaching. And so, again, that's a great person for a second hire, but probably not your Mm -hmm. first hire. Yeah, I do agree with that. Well, let's move on to the quick fire round. This is the fun bit because we covered a lot of material here, but I have some fun questions. What is the worst piece of advice you've ever been given? I don't, I haven't been put down very much as a woman. I know a lot of people have. So I would say in general, a lot of the bad advice I hear that other people have received is, well, you know, you, you can't do that. You're a girl. Oh, no. You know, or now I was never told that I got lucky, but a lot of people who come to me tell me that they've heard that from family, from school teachers, from others. So, you know, whether it's being overtly told that or treated at your job, mm-hmm. like you can't do that, you know, I think that we have to make sure that we're not taking those outside voices and making them part of our fabric. So. Yeah. Um, remember bad advice feels bad. It does. I agree. Well, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given or heard? Probably just something simple, like try something new. You know, I think a lot of people who have some experience in doing something say, well, that's the way we've always done it. Mm. And I say, but what if there's a better way to do it? You know, it it, it can't be perfect. It's probably not perfect. There's got to be something here that can be improved, made better, faster, fewer errors, you know, 
take a look. Don't be afraid to analyze something and say, how can this be better? Even if it's already good, try something new. Yeah. Yeah. What is the last book you read and would you recommend it? Oh my gosh. This is, um, are you actually the, the last book I read was Deceptive Design by Harry Brignall, uh, B-R-I-G-N-U-L-L. He is the person who coined the phrase dark patterns, which has been renamed deceptive design, which is basically anytime a company on purpose makes things difficult for customers, hoping that they'll keep more customers. For example, companies that make it hard to cancel things oh, God, yeah. or companies that add things to your shopping cart that you, you weren't going to buy. And then of course, there's more subtle ways of, uh, messing with people. So the book is called Deceptive Design. And basically he talks about a lot of different types of ways mm-hmm. that we purposefully manipulate people mm-hmm. to try to get them to sign on or make it hard to leave or do something specific when they're in our ecosystem. And uh, of course, how, why we need to stop doing that. Not only is it unethical, but more and more companies are being sued. And I think I just saw a headline, though I didn't check if this is true, that the entire country of India has now banned 12 well-known deceptive design uh, patterns, as we call them. Oh, wow. So um, I think I think we're going to see these things b- being increasingly recognized for the manipulative to unethical things that they are. And um, we're going to have to clean up our act. So yes, yeah. I would recommend people read uh, Deceptive Design. Well, I will make sure a link to that is in the show notes for anybody interested alongside a link to the episode of your YouTube channel that you recommended earlier. Yes. But how can people find out more about what you do? Tell us more. Sure. And I've got a book, if I can quickly mention, it's called Customers Know You Suck. (laughs) Um, And it's about being more customer centric. I would say if people want to find me, I'm pretty easy to find. You can always start on uh, the Delta CX website, which because we do so many different things, when you hit the homepage, it's kind of like, okay, what are you here for? And then we'll help you get there. People can certainly check out the YouTube channel, which is customer experience, customer centricity, but CX-CC for short. Um, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. I've got a newsletter there. I also publish the same articles on Medium if you'd rather read them for free and not in LinkedIn. So um, my LinkedIn publication is called rbefored.com. Uh, research before design and development, mm. everybody. rbefored. And then again, I'm Debbie Levitt on LinkedIn. I don't usually add people as a connection because I just find my feed gets too overwhelming with how many connections I have. But I, I do hope people will follow me and comment on my stuff and agree or disagree or offer another point of view. Thank you. I'll make sure all those links are in the show notes. So if you're listening and you want to follow Debbie, follow her work, please do head over to the show notes and get the links and the link to her book as well. Any final thoughts you'd like to leave us with today, Debbie? Gosh, we've covered so many topics. Thank you so much for, for the show and thanks to the listeners. Um, gosh, I, uh, final thoughts. I, I think I would just tell people failure is okay, but repeated failure says, you know, failure says something didn't qu- go quite right here. Repeated failure says 
something really isn't going mm. quite right here. And so I would tell people, don't be afraid to press pause and analyze and assess and see mm. where things are going wrong and how they could be better. Don't just jump to the next guess. Stop and figure out what what went wrong. And a lot of that is built into lean. We say we want to be lean, but there's a lot of stuff in lean and other stuff that says, hey, it's okay to take the time mm. to figure out where we're wasting time, wasting money, resources, customer trust, the environment. And so it's okay to press pause and and do a little analysis so that you can bounce back better. I love that. I feel like I need a little mantra written on my wall. It's okay to press pause. <laughs> love that so much. Thank you so much for joining us today, Debbie. I've had a blast. I hope you have too. Me too. Listeners, yes. please do go check out Levy on social media and on her website. But as always, until next time, stay on your tech leadership game. Follow your dreams because the world really does need that uniqueness that you bring as a leading woman in tech. <laughs>